we are continuing the series, Defending the Faith. And so what we'll do is I'll do my best to try to get through this um, and giving opportunities. If you have a question while I'm talking, feel free to raise your hand. <clears throat> but if possible, if you can maybe hold them to the end, uh, if we've got some a few minutes, hopefully, we will... Um, We'll go over a question. I'll give you an opportunity to ask questions then as well. So hopefully you'll pick it up um, and run with it. We're in the series Defending the Faith. Tonight is part three. We're going to do our best to answer the question, how can I know there is a God? How can I know there is a God? I mean, obviously everybody in this room, you're here because you do know there is a God. You've experienced a living God. Um, and... You know, I think that nothing else causes as much controversy as the topic of God. Is there a God? Um, you know, what is he like? Uh, and everybody has a different belief about God. I've, I've said this before on uh, on occasion, but, you know, a long time ago when Jay Leno was doing the Tonight Show, he would go out and they would give him a microphone and he would do a segment called Jaywalking where he would stick a microphone in somebody's face and say, what do you think about this and um, you know every person they you could tell they didn't know really what they were talking about but I'm clearly before the camera started rolling he would say just talk just you know if you don't even understand it just talk just say whatever you want to say and it was obvious when the camera started rolling and the microphone got in their face that that's exactly what they did because they were talking about something they didn't know anything about and uh, so, you know, if you asked people, if you did that, if you did jaywalking down the streets of Houston um, and you asked people what they believed about God, about his existence, about who he is, what his nature is, you're going to get all sorts of answers. And some of them will be colorful. Um, I got to be honest with you. I was I was uh, probably 15 or so years ago for the very first time in my life. I preached in a missionary Baptist church. And um, if you've never had the occasion to visit a missionary Baptist church, it, it's a different experience. It's Baptist, but it's not really Baptist. Missionary Baptist is about as Pentecostal as you're going to get um, and still have a Baptist label. But what surprised me more than anything else was when I went to the restroom at this missionary Baptist church and I saw a portrait of Jesus and he was not Caucasian. He was not Jewish. He was African-American. And I had never seen that in my life. And, um, and I don't remember really, uh, I mean, he, he looked like the Caucasian Jewish version of Jesus, but he was African-American. And I had never seen a depiction of Jesus like that. So if you add, and there, there's a TV show, it's a comedy, and uh, the, when the mother... Uh, um, you know, when the grandma gets it, when she gets upset, she's like, oh, black Jesus, you know, and she starts praying and she specifically says that. And uh, and I had never experienced that before. And I thought that was very interesting. So everybody's got a different opinion, different version uh, of the what the ethnicity of Jesus and God should be like and what he and sometimes people will say that God is really a she, the divine female. You got that whole group. And everybody's got a different opinion about Jesus and about God. And does he exist? And if he does, is he the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament? Or are they different gods or what? So we ask questions about who, what is God? What is, what is he made of? And who is God? Uh, where did he come from? Where is he currently right now? Is he hiding? Is he hanging out on a planet? Is he waiting for us to discover him on, on, on you know, Jupiter or something like this? Where did he come from? Who made God? Uh, what does he do all day? And why would God, the cre- if he is the creator of the universe, why would this God want a personal relationship with me? Why would he care about me? So um, there's a, a church father, uh, his name is Augustine, and he said people are made for God and their hearts are restless until they find rest in him. So that's your first blank on your sheet. Their hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. The universal longing for something 
not derived from reason or experience is a good starting point explaining the existence of God. If a child asks you, describe heaven, well, you're describing something you've never, a place you've never been, you've only read about, heard about, maybe somebody died, they came back to life, they told you what they saw, what they experienced. When you try to take something finite, well, when you try to, let me back up, when you try to, when you try, when you take something that's infinite and explain it to someone who's finite, it's incredibly difficult. You mean we live forever? Yes. Well, how old will I be when I'm in heaven? I don't know. How will I know the people that I know here on earth that are in heaven? I don't really know. I mean, we have a lot of things that are beyond our ability to grasp and understand. Will we ever die? No, I don't think so. You know, um, will we just live forever and ever and ever? I mean, that's kind of the plan. But there's a lot of things that we struggle to explain and even wrap our own brains around because the finite will never fully understand and comprehend the infinite. If you could understand God, you wouldn't need God because you'd be God. So if you could understand everything about him, his ways, his methods, his his character and, and every facet of his existence, you wouldn't need to believe in a God because you would have infinite knowledge. So a couple of the points, and we'll look at the points and then the counterpoints of the argument about the existence of God. First, the first point is God is the uncaused cause, that he caused the universe. And what that means is that he made everything, but nobody made him. So he is the uncaused cause of the entire universe. If something made God, then that would be God. And that's the Mormon theology, that as God is, man once was, and as man is, God can be, or as God is, man can become. What they're saying is that God, the current God in the Mormon theology, was really Adam. And Adam achieved deity. He achieved godhood. And as God is, man once was. So God used to be a man. And when uh, he was, when he died or whatever happened to him, he was awarded this planet to rule. And as Man is, as God is, man can become. So you can, they believe you will be little gods. You'll be gods of your own planet. And if that's, you know, clearly not what Scripture teaches. That's not what we believe. Um, We don't believe that you or me or any other human will ever achieve deity. We'll be in a different state. We'll be in a perfected state, but we won't become God. Okay. We may, uh, number two, we may offer sound arguments and proofs for God's existence by reasoning. Because faith and reason work together, belief in God is not a blind leap in the dark. So God never expects you to take everything on blind faith. He reveals himself repeatedly through creation, through nature, through the moral laws and the existing laws that he's put into place. And uh, so we don't need to check our brain at the door to believe in God. We can believe in God. We can have faith and reason together. And the third point is that there is a difference between, quote, is and, quote, ought. And I'll explain what that means in in a minute. But this distinction comes from a standard, an objective moral law. Human moral awareness is best explained as there being an actual moral lawgiver or God. So I'll explain what is and ought means in a minute. The counterpoints. Those who do not believe there is a God say the Christians defeat themselves with the uncaused cause argument. If everything had to have a cause, then who or what caused God? Number two, if evil exists, and it does, then God must not exist because he would not allow his creation to suffer. That's their second counterpoint. The third counterpoint is you can't see God. He isn't something you can prove by experience because he isn't physical. 
So one of the, there are a lot of arguments when you get into the, uh, the philosophy of trying to prove God. There's the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument, and I'm not going to bore you with what any of those mean because what we're going to talk about tonight is the moral argument, and the moral argument for the existence of God is really the best argument there is. Um, people in all cultures, in all times know that they are to do right and not do wrong. And that is evidence of some common standard by which everyone judges things. Now, there are exceptions to the rule, and we'll actually get into the exceptions in a few minutes as well. But everyone, people in all cultures and all times, know they are to do right and not do wrong. Now, they define what's right and wrong, but they all have a standard. They all have a set of moral do's and don'ts, what they will allow and what they will not allow. Atheists have a very hard time trying to explain morality. They believe the universe consists only of matter and energy, what they can observe, what they can measure. But concepts like right and wrong, justice and injustice, they can't be weighed They can't be measured. So they exist in this realm beyond the mere physical nature of universe. It can't be measured. It can't be weighed. It can't be quantified. And because of that, atheists struggle with understanding the moral argument. They, atheists, live in this universe of is. Matter is. Energy is. Gravity is. All of the laws of thermodynamics and physics, they are. But they can't get to an ought position where a person ought to do good. He ought not to do bad. This is the classic, it's called is-ought dilemma. A person cannot get from an ought to an is. There is no logical connection between John is a man and John ought not to steal. They can't explain the existence of the ought arguments because those cannot be measured. So some atheist philosophers, they recognize that their worldview, it cannot uh, account for objective morality. Their usual explanation for the existence of morality, just take a wild guess. What do you think atheists give as an example or an explanation for the existence of morality? Any idea? It's their favorite word, evolution. That morality evolved somehow through a slow process. Humans evolved. They developed an instinct for doing good and not doing bad. This is because, according to the Darwinian theory, this behavior made humans more fit to survive and pass on their genes towards other people, to future generations. Now, this sounds scientific, but it's not scientific at all. Uh, There's no way to test this theory, whether certain behaviors get passed down to future generations to make a species more fit to survive. But they believe that uh, morality is a product of evolution. This is what's called a just-so story. A just-so story starts from the existence of something and tries to, it, tries to explain how it came to be. A just-so story starts from the existence of something and tries to explain how it came to be. For instance, you could believe, I'll give you just a ridiculous example, you could believe that pancakes come from the pancake fairy. So when you find pancakes on your plate... Despite the skillet in your wife's hand and the bowl of pancake batter near the stove, he could say, well, I see the pancake fairies have been here. Now, that's a, that's a just-so story. You, you see, well, this, uh, this preceded this other thing. So I have this belief of one thing, and so therefore uh, something else must have caused it. And, and so some people actually argue that Christians have the exact same position, that Christians have a just-so story to explain God. The difference is the evidence of creation points to a creator. The evidence of creation points to a creator. 
we see all the evidence. Creation implies a creator. A painting implies the existence of what? A painter. The, the tubes of paint don't just squirt themselves on a canvas and magically become Monet's water lilies. That doesn't happen. If you have a painting, it implies that there was a painter. There was someone that created that and made that. A building implies the existence of a builder. Because concrete and steel don't just like say, well, I got nothing better to do today. And then, you know, magically turn into, you know, the, the I was going to say Trump Tower because that was the only building I could think of right off the bat. <laughs> they don't just jump up into magical uh, buildings in and of themselves. If there's a building, it implies there's a builder. Um, if you, th- the likelihood that you could take, let's say, 10 million letters cut out of the, the you know, English alphabet, and you cut out every single letter, and you threw it up in the air, and when it landed on the ground, it perfectly made out the entire novel of War and Peace. The likelihood that that would happen is the likelihood that creation could come from, uh, could be created without a creator. I mean, novels don't write themselves. If there's a novel, it implies that there is a writer. Now, clearly one day robots will have all of those jobs. They'll be painting, they'll be writing, and they'll be building. But for now, someone has to build the robots, and that's humans. So um, the fact that there is creation implies there is a creator. There's someone who put the world in a perfect place. And and so I've talked about this briefly before, but let me just give you just a real quick uh, shotgun thing. a statement here. Um, the one of the things I love to study is I love astronomy. I love uh, learning about astrophysics. I have like so many books that I read and listen to on that subject, and I f- I feel like I should be giving lectures on the topic, but that's not what my degree's in. Um, what amazes me is that the the uh, Earth is at a perfect position in our solar system. If it were the if Earth were any closer to the sun, it would be too hot for there to be life on Earth. If we're only too farther away, it would be too cold for there to be life on Earth. It's at the perfect position from distance to the sun for there to have life on Earth. The moon, if it were any closer, the water would sweep over the land. We would all be water people. Um, there'd be no life on Earth, really, because there'd be no dry ground. ground. We can't live in the ocean. Um, if it were any farther away, the water would be too low. There'd be no fish on uh fish life, um, and uh, so there would be no life on Earth. The Earth is perfectly tilted uh, on its axis to allow the radiation to, uh, from the sun to bounce off of it with minimal damage. Um, now, that is excluding the time of the 80s where everybody had the big hair and they, uh, big hairdos depleted the ozone, but barring that human involvement, we had a really good system going, <coughs> uh, without the, whatever, the hairnet um, hairspray. Yeah. Um, there, is, there is a perfect amount of salt in the ocean for there to be ocean life. Um, there is the same amount of salt in the ocean as it, there is in your bloodstream. Um, I mean, unless you just, like, you know, consume massive quantities of salt. Um, your, your body is perfectly positioned um, to exist in a variety of climates and situations. Um, and the likelihood that there could be so many different species on one planet living in total unity, um, well, I mean, except when we try to eat them, um, but the fact that there are so many different kinds of species of animals, and there's only one kind of human, um, and there is no other life on any other planet we've ever scoped out. Uh, not one thing. Not one animal, not one camel, not one horse, not one fish. Nothing. There is no life on any other planet that we have ever found, and we most likely will never find life on any other planet besides Earth. The likelihood that this planet is the perfect planet for there to be life and so many different varieties of life is a ridiculous argument if you don't believe in God. 
the fact that we evolved from chimpanzees begs the question, why are there still chimpanzees? Why are they not in the process of evolving? Why are they not, you know, grabbing a tuba and playing, you know, um, Ride of the Valkyries? Um, I was going to kill the rabbit, kill the rabbit, because I've got toddlers. Um, but they don't show that cartoon anymore, but that was the only song I could think of. I mean, the fact is we have all of these animals and, and uh, all of these different species, and uh, we're the only ones that do stand-up comedy. We're the only ones that make music, unless you, you can teach you know, some animals to, to do different things, but they have to be taught that. That's not innate in them. Um, so the creation screams the existence of a creator, and yet we have people who in their pride and in their arrogance feel like that nothing created them. They were just a byproduct of you know, um, evolution. So another problem that atheists and evolutionists face is something called altruism. Altruism is when a person chooses to do something that benefits someone else instead of doing something for themselves. Altruism is when someone does something that benefits someone else rather than doing something that benefits themselves, even to the point of sacrificing their life. A man might put his life in danger, rushing into a burning building, in order to save another person's life, sometimes it's not even a person they know, especially if you're a firefighter. Or if you just see a burning building, you, you know, rush towards um, danger to save someone else's life. Well, altruism presents a serious flaw in Darwinian philosophy. Darwin said that evolution requires beings most fit for survival to pass on their genes, while those unfit do not pass on their genes and eventually that genetic strain dies out. Not only the strong survive, but only the fit survive. Well, people, through a moral choice, deliberately risk not passing on their genes through altruism, contrary to what Darwin said evolution would compel them to do. Evolution would compel you to save your own skin, to protect yourself, to make sure that, well, if they're in a burning building, clearly they're not the most fit to survive. Um, but altruism is a problem for evolution and Darwinian philosophy. Um, some, will, some people will say, well, you know, altruism arose because peeps, people somehow knew that selfless behavior as a species would benefit the species as a whole. So, um, you know, it's, it's better for people to sacrifice themselves in certain situations for the fit to survive. But that's completely contrary to their own philosophy. They're basically uh, disagreeing with their own points at this point. Um, and they might say that, assuming that you n don't know any better. You don't know really what they believe. All right. You still with me? <laughs> I know, I'm telling you, this is deep stuff, but we're giving you some, some decent, uh, I hate to use the term ammunition, um, because we don't want to feel like we're you know, gunning for atheists, but uh, some good arguments, I should say. <clears throat> um, speaking of gunning for atheists, when I was a uh, when I was a youth pastor, um, I was pretty edgy, way edgier than I am now. Like I'm an old man now, I'm pretty conservative. But in my earlier years, um, when I was a youth pastor, I would fill up a super soaker with anointing oil, and we would drive by and we would squirt it on bars and uh, establishments that we really wanted to close. So we we called it drive by praying. And, uh, and it, was, it was all fun and games until the cops showed up. So, uh, you know, we're, we don't want to gun for atheists. But I, I did, in a, in a time of my life, I did gun for some um, other places. Um, shoot them with anointing oil. Okay. Um, an even bigger problem for the evolutionary explanation of morality is this. And this is one of your statements. If what people call moral behavior is just a product of natural evolution, then there's nothing praiseworthy about it. It's just behavior. It's like scratching an itch. There's nothing praiseworthy. There's nothing remarkable about moral behavior. 
uh, especially the high moral behavior, sacrificing yourself, altruism, and things like this, because it's, they, they would say it's just a product of natural evolution. Well, it's ridiculous. Um, the opposite is even more of a problem for evolutionists. Because if moral behavior is, a, is, a, is part of evolution, then how can immoral behavior be condemned? The person they would condemn could simply say, well, I must not have inherited the moral behavior through evolution, so you can't lock me up for my crimes. Well, obviously, we understand how ridiculous that is. If, if this is true, if that argument is true, then how could anybody possibly praise those who at great risk to themselves uh, took a stand on moral grounds? This week we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and he is one of them. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi is another. At great personal risk, they took a stand against um, immoral behavior, what they felt like was immoral behavior. And so if they were just behaving the way their evolutionary uh, wiring dictates, there's nothing praiseworthy about their actions. Why do they have a holiday? That's just evolution. It would be like praising a cat for being hungry and then eating. They're just doing what they're wired to do. And so there's nothing remarkable, remarkable about that. The fact that people have moral instincts, whether they follow them or not, points to something outside themselves, a standard against which actions are judged. And that standard is God. Unlike other arguments for the existence of God, as I said before, the cosmological, teleological, and ontological, the moral argument is the best for pointing people to the God of the Bible. So how does the standard, if God is the standard, if there is a standard against which actions are judged, then how does the standard work? Have you ever had someone ask you a question if they, dis, if they didn't believe in God or something like that? They asked you a question um, like, can God make a rock too big for him to pick up? They like to be mm, problematic. Can God make a rock too big for him to pick up? Because if you say, yes, he can make a rock too big for him to pick up, then he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He can't pick up the rock. If you say no, he can't make a rock that is too big for him to pick up, then you've limited his creative ability. And if he's the God of the universe, he can create anything, he can do anything. So there's no way to answer that question the way they want you to answer. Um, essentially, the answer is any rock God makes, he can pick up. That's the right answer. But sometimes people like to be problematic and create op uh, questions for you. So, for instance, one of the questions regarding this is does God command something because it is moral or is it moral because God commands it? In other words, is morality some thing that is out there beyond even God himself, that there is a moral code that exists and God's just the policeman. He's just trying to make sure everybody keeps the moral code. Uh, no, that's not the way we believe it. We believe that morality is not something outside of God, not something apart from him. Uh, we believe that it is intrinsic to his very nature and his existence. Morality is rooted in God's nature. When Scripture says that God cannot lie, it doesn't mean that through superior willpower he resists the urge to do something. It means he is incapable of lying because it would violate his very essence. So morality is, exists because of the character and nature of God. And when God gave the Ten Commandments, when he gave the 613 ordinances in the Old Testament, he is commanding, giving commands to help us understand his morality, his high level of uh, of. The, the bar that he has set, the standard that he has set. Because when he says, when he gives a command, thou shalt not steal, you'd think that's pretty obvious. Don't take something that doesn't belong to you. Clearly it was not so obvious because in the rest of the, old, in, in the, rest of the Torah, he has to explain, okay, don't steal your neighbor's, your neighbor's horses. Don't steal your neighbor's donkeys. Don't steal your neighbor's wife. 
Don't steal your neighbor's belongings. Don't take a marking that marks where your property ends and theirs begins and move it so that you actually steal part of their property. They were doing that, and that is a command. Don't move the markers because that's stealing. God had to be specific. You would think that thou shalt not steal would have pretty much covered all the bases, but it did not. So God had to be more specific. Because people are created in God's image and God's likeness, they share certain attributes with him. When a person lies, when a person cheats, when a person steals, when they murder, they act contrary to God's nature, and they know it. Even if at only some basic instinctive level, they know deep in their being that they should, they ought to do what's right, what's in accordance with God's nature, and they ought not to do what's wrong, what is not in accordance with God's nature. Now, some people say, well, that can't be true because morality is relative. Every culture seems to have things they consider right and things that they consider wrong. And this would be a fatal blow to the morality argument for proof of God's existence, but it's a mistaken objection. Because what we think is a different standard of morality among different groups of people is actually not a different standard of morality. It's just differences of opinions on how to apply the rules. I know that was a lot to take in. Let me give you an example. The Inuit people who lived north of the Arctic Circle they, used, they, they may still do, I don't know if they do, but they, for a long time, uh, they practiced a form of euthanasia. When a person reached a certain advanced age, they would be placed on a large piece of ice and pushed out to sea to eventually starve to death. Today, people would be horrified at that practice, protesting, all human life is sacred. So who is right? the Inuit, or everybody else. Well, they're both operating from the same moral principle, preserve human life. But the emphasis is on a different course of action. The Inuit believed that resources were scarce. And so in order to preserve human life, they had to preserve those resources for the young, those who were able-bodied, those who could still contribute to society. Because there weren't enough resources for everyone, they reasoned that if somebody had to starve, it should be the people who've lived their long life and cannot contribute anymore to the tribe. People today would protest that the Inuit were mistaken in the facts, and and now you can just get Amazon Prime to deliver your groceries, and you don't have to starve. Please don't starve your old people. They would, they would protest that the Inuit were mistaken in the facts and in applying this moral principle, but they can't say that the Inuit people were operating from a completely different moral principle because they, like everybody else, sought to preserve human life. The argument for abortion is to protect the mother's life, etc. And you can disagree with that, um, but... That is, the, that is how people rationalize that moral choice or immoral choice, depending on how you look at it, is they believe that one life is more sacred and more should be preserved above another. So understand that no culture has ever celebrated lying, cheating, or stealing. History is full of lying, thieving, murderers, but... People tend to want to avoid being called a liar, a thief, or a murderer. They either deny they did it or they try to justify their actions. When I was, uh, um, I used to do a lot of street witnessing, and so I would, uh, I had this kind of method that I used. Um, if, if you're familiar with it, it's called the way of the master. But essentially, um, you walk up to somebody and you say, you know what, can I ask you a question? Do you consider yourself to be a good person? And everybody says yes. I mean, like, who's, who's going to say, no, I'm actually a horrible human being, but thank you for asking. I mean, they're going to take themselves and they will compare themselves to the worst possible human they could think of. And who is the worst human that most people could think of? 
Hitler, thank you. He's the standard, okay? So as long as you're not murdering 6 million Jewish people, you're pretty decent. You're not a bad human being. Of course, you know, we, there are plenty of other horrible human beings um, in, in the history of the world, but we pick one, and we say, well, as long as I'm not as bad as that guy, yes, I'm a good person. So then my response to that person is, okay, well, let me ask you a few questions to see if that's true. Because if there's one thing, I just splashed Dr. Pepper on myself. I have a drinking problem. We'll talk about it later. Um, One thing that people love to do is justify themselves. And they would love to demonstrate to you how good of a person they think they are to you so that you can believe them. So my question is, uh, have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? Well, ever. Have you ever taken something that did not belong to you? A pencil from work? A paper clip from your teacher's desk, the apple that was sitting on the corner of their desk. Have you ever stolen somebody's lunch? Have you ever taken somebody's lunch money? Have you ever taken something that belonged to a sibling or your parents? Money out of their wallet ever in your entire life? And yes, most people are going to say, okay, yeah. So my question to you is, what does that make you? Don, what does that make you? If you take something that doesn't belong to you, what does that make you? A thief. Nobody wants to say that. They'll say, well, um, I I needed it. You know, they'll justify their actions. Say, no. And so the trick is, say, okay, if I took something, if if I took your wallet, what would you call me? And they have no problem calling me a thief, but they just don't want to be called a thief. Okay, Um, have you ever said something that was not 100% true? Yes. And if they say no, then you could say, well, you just lied. But you just said something that was not 100% true. Because at no time in your life will you always tell the truth. You may not remember it, but I can tell you, when my toddlers grow up, and if they ever say to me, I've never told a lie in my life, I'll say, you're lying right now because you lied when you were a baby. I asked you, you know, did you mess your diaper? And you said no. And I, I can tell you messed your diaper. You're lying to me right now. <clears throat> so if you tell a lie, what does that make you, Don? A liar. It makes you a liar. So you're a thief and a liar. Um, Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever used God's name as careless, like a cuss word, or used it with uh, just completely carelessly? What is that? Have have you ever done that? Yes. So the Bible calls that blasphemy. Um, And uh, so the other, and I don't go through all 10 of the commandments. We just go through four of them. But um, I, I usually will say, well, you know, Jesus said, uh, well, the scripture says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. So have you ever done that? And of course, yeah, people are going to say yes to that. And I said, okay, so by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, blaspheming adulterer. And that's just four of the Ten Commandments. We haven't even looked at all the other six, but you've probably broken those too. And so if God were to judge you just on the Ten Commandments, would he judge you innocent or guilty? Now, think like, don't think like a Christian. Think like a person that is not a Christian. If God judges you by the Ten Commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? Okay, but a lot of people will not say guilty. They'll say innocent. To which I respond, you just broke the Second Commandment because you just made a God in your own image that doesn't punish guilty people. But if you stand before a judge and someone has, has uh, stolen everything in your house, you want that judge to pronounce a correct judgment. Did they take something that, was, that did not belong to them? It doesn't matter if they needed it. It doesn't matter if they wanted it. It doesn't matter if they felt like they were justified in doing it. Did they take something that didn't belong to them? You would want that judge to give a righteous judgment and say, yes, they did, and here's the punishment. So the question is, if God judged you by just the Ten Commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? And they, at that point, will say, well, I'm guilty. Okay, if you're guilty, do you think God would let you go to heaven, or would he send you to hell? And again, sometimes people will justify themselves. Well, I, I think, and I'm like, don't break the Second Commandment again. You already broke it once in this conversation. Well, okay, if he's judging me by the Ten Commandments, and if you broke one part of the law, you've broken the whole law, so I would go to hell. And while that sounds like 
that's kind of a bummer of a conversation, you clearly don't end with that. You say, but let me ask you this. Do you know what God did for you so that you didn't have to go to hell? Do you know the price that was paid to set you free to accept your punishment, the punishment you were due for breaking the law? Do you know what God did for you so that you, didn't, so that you don't go to hell? And then you get an opportunity to present the gospel to a person. The problem is that we oftentimes, when we deal with people, we uh, try to convince them that we have the cure for the disease. We run up to them and, I've got this cure. I've got this amazing cure, and it has changed my life. And the person that we're talking to would say, that's great. Moving on. We're like, no, 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 you don't understand. This cure is so amazing. It's kind of like when somebody talks to you about essential oils. Like, it's so amazing. It's going to change your life. And you're like, I didn't ask. I don't want them. I don't need them. You know, if you sell essential oils, I'm sorry. They're, I'm sure they're wonderful things. I'm sure they're wonderful. But for the purpose of this example, you understand what I'm saying. We try to convince someone they need something, or we tell them we have something, and we don't explain to them why they need it. We don't explain to them uh, that they need the cure. We just tell them we have a cure, and you'll love it. It's a great cure. It's the greatest cure of all the cures. It's the best. Instead, what we should do is uh, basically we, when we confront someone with the law, which is what Jesus did, anytime he confronted someone in Scripture, he confronted them with the law. He showed them where they stood in relation to either adhering to or breaking the law. The problem is we don't do that. And so we, if you were to come up to someone and you were to say, look, um, you have all of the symptoms, all of the warning signs, for this disease. If somebody walked up to you and said, look, you know, the, I, I, I've seen, uh, you, you're, you're exhibiting these symptoms, and these are textbook, and you'd get concerned. You're like, well, I do, I am having this pain in these unusual places, and I am, you know, bleeding from this, and I am losing my hair, and I am, you know, we, we'd, you know, all of the warning symptoms, all the warning signs, all the symptoms of a disease would begin to concern us and then in the moment of our greatest concern for our own condition, the person would say, but isn't it awesome? There's a cure for that. Yes, give me this cure. I want this cure because you've convinced them they have the disease. We've been handing people parachutes and not telling them the plane's going down. They've been on, a, you know, they, they've been on an enjoyable flight where it's smooth sailing and we've been handing out parachutes to people who don't think that they need a parachute but you know what when you walk up to somebody and say this plane is going down it's going to crash and you're going to need this you know what they're going to do they're going to take the parachute so we have to change our way of communicating the gospel to you do what Jesus did and use the law to explain the condition of people that they are sinners, but that there is a way. That's the gospel. That's presenting the gospel in a meaningful way. People will justify, excuse me, people will justify their own behavior. So because they will compare themselves to you. Well, you you can't, you know, stand in a position to judge me. And our response would be, I'm not judging you at all. I had to deal with this myself. I, I am a liar, a thief, and an adulterer, and a blasphemer, and, and all those things. But I know the cure for that, and I know the solution for all of that. Um, so people will often justify their own behavior. Uh, they'll, they, they know that murder is wrong, but they'll justify it in their hearts. So... People who try to redefine their, their, and justify their behavior, um, their acts of lying and stealing and murdering, they're effect, kind of fleeing the scene of the crime. Um, they deny it. They redefine it. Well, it wasn't really. It's not, it was just a white lie. Well, if it's not true, it's not true. It doesn't matter what shade of lie it is. And so when we have all of these all this evidence, a person's conscience um, that lets them know. You know, I mean, when a, when, when a crime gets committed and the officer arrives and he sees someone running away and they're not wearing jigging apparel, 
he's going to chase them down. If he sees them flee the scene of the crime, he's going to go get them. Because why are you running if you're not guilty or if you're not jogging? And if you're, you know, so if you're running away from the scene of the crime, he's going to stop them. Now, you know, um, they, may not, they may not have enough probable cause to arrest them, but he will probably detain them and see whether, they're, uh, whether they actually committed the crime. So everybody has these moral uh, codes, their core truths of morality. And at the basic level, they know they should do right, not do wrong, even if they disagree with the specific application. There's a scripture, it's at the uh, middle of your page, Romans 2, 14 through 15. It says, Paul wrote this, he said, So when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences testify in support of this, and their competing thoughts either accuse or excuse them. So there's no excuse. Everybody has a moral code written on their heart, and whether you're Jewish or Gentile, you all have it. And uh, the, the fact that there is a moral argument that cannot be explained away by, by atheism and Darwinianism and all this stuff proves that there is creation, there is a creator. Because there's a creation, there is a creator. Because there's a painting, there's a painter. Because there's a building, there's a builder. Because there's a novel, there's a writer. And so for us, we recognize that knowing those things when we engage with people who are antagonistic to believing there is a God uh, can be very helpful for us. I want to give you guys, we're, we're, we're done. I want to give you an opportunity if you have any questions, any thoughts on this, any, any experiences maybe you had when you were talking to someone who is antagonistic to the gospel. Yeah, Victor? So that's really one of the best ways to take a person from atheism to agnosticism, and that's one step closer to accepting Christ. The atheist says there is no God. So then the response from us would be, so you have, as you said, you have searched all of creation. You have absolute knowledge. You know hiding behind, uh, not hiding behind one distant planet in one distant universe or galaxy or whatever is not some supreme ultimate being who created everything and flung it into space. You have seen the deepest parts of space, and you know, without a doubt, there is no God. And an atheist cannot make that statement because they don't know. Um, So typically you can get them to go, well, okay, so I'm not saying there is no God. I'm just saying that I don't think there's a God. I don't know if there's a God. And that is moving a person from atheism to agnosticism, And at least at that point, they're willing to entertain. There may be a God. I've just never had an experience with them. But the vast majority of real, like, militant atheists I've ever met, where do you think they grew up? In church. So their their biggest issue with atheism is not, it's rooted in the fact that a lot of them had a very bad experience in church, with a Christian, they were betrayed, they were deeply wounded. Um, you're going to have uh, children who are, are sexually abused in certain churches, excuse me, um, where they will grow up. Not, but God didn't protect them when they were a child. They were an altar boy. They were serving in, in children's church or whatever. God wasn't there. God didn't protect him, and they don't believe there is a God. Because if there is a God, how could he let that horrible thing happen? And it's just because there are horrible human beings on this in this world. There are beings that exert their will over some others, some to do good and some to do evil. Um, so it doesn't mean that God wasn't there. I believe God's heart abs- absolutely broke when uh, a horrible event like that happened. Um, but it's all in how we uh, respond to it that determines kind of our worldview uh, of whether there is or is not a God. So, um, yeah, you can, you can definitely... And I don't think that's... I mean, I... If if someone says yes, there's absolutely no God, and they won't budge on that, then you know their their heart is so hardened, uh, and you, typically that's going to become that's going to be due to some sort of offense, um, some something that happened to them, 
And, I mean, it's almost without exception. I don't think I've ever met him or talked to an atheist that didn't have some sort of deep wound that happened to them in the church um, or in, in some capacity where they feel like God was silent, absent, failed them, and so they just stopped believing that he existed. It was easier for them. Any other questions? <sighs> well, the good news is that in a couple weeks... You'll get your cap and gown, and we'll, we'll let you walk across the stage, and we'll play pomp and circumstance. It's deep stuff, I know, and sometimes it can be a little hard to follow and hard to stay with it. Um, but I think that if, if you will do your best and smack yourself every once in a while to stay awake, um, you will learn something. Um, and uh, next week, we're going to cover where did the universe come from. Um, so, again, a really, really deep topic, a really deep issue. Um, but these are questions that you're going to be asked. When you, when you share your faith with people, they're going to ask you, where, you know, if, if God created everything, then who created God? And as I said tonight, we believe he is the uncaused cause. He created everything. He didn't, if, he, if he were created, he wouldn't be God. Um, and so they want to know, okay, well, you know, how did the universe come into being? And so there's... Um, there's lots of stuff that, again, is, is pretty deep and heavy, but I think that if you'll take the notes and stick with it, then uh, I hope that you will learn something and be able to be prepared when someone asks you uh, these questions. Would you stand with me tonight? And let's dismiss in prayer, and you can all put your heads in a nice bucket and uh, relax for a bit. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Um, we pray, God, that as we go through this material, and while it is sometimes a little challenging, a little in, more intellectual than uh, we would like on a Wednesday night, we'd like to maybe make it a little light, more lighthearted or whatever, but we know that we will come in contact with people who will question our faith. They will argue. They will seek to discredit and discourage and uh, um, just absolutely disprove our beliefs and so we need to know what we believe and we need to know it in such a way that we can um, have a conversation an intelligent conversation with someone who does not believe what we do so help us lord as we come in contact with people help us remember these things um, that we've learned so that we can be prepared for sharing with people we love you lord and uh, we pray that you guide us and protect us keep it keep us healthy keep us safe um, and bring us back here uh, to celebrate you and to be together as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.